Thought-provoking. That's very good. Well, there's many of us who did not grow up, uh, did not grow up in, a t- in, in a church that practiced the liturgical calendar or even knew how to say the phrase liturgical calendar. And uh, yet here we are. We are leaving the season that we call Advent, and we're entering into a time which we call Christmastide. In many church traditions, the season of Advent is a, is, is a time to be sung in the minor key. And those churches reserve the, celebra- the celebratory songs of Christmas, which we love, until after Advent's over with, after Christmas Eve is complete. And uh, we don't do that because we know that you would all protest. Uh, we love those, those beautiful songs of Christmas, uh, like Joy to the World and other Christmas favorites. Uh, but for a lot of people, they hold that for the 12 days of Christmas, that is Christmas tide. This, for me, speaks of a tendency that we have as just people, as humans, to rush through times of ex- expectation, of waiting to get to Christmas. It's hard for us to wait. We hate waiting. Uh, I recently went to the doctor with Jen. Our scheduled time, you know, we were told to be there at a certain time, right? We got there, we waited 45 minutes in the waiting room, just to be moved into the actual other room, which we waited for another 45 minutes. And I thought, where else do we do this? I felt it was so unjust that this might happen. And I'm, I'm, I remember Jerry Seinfeld saying that if it goes too far, he starts pulling out the tongue compressors and licking each one, you know, kind of doing whatever you can. I mean, I, I feel I hate waiting. We have a tendency to want to rush through waiting to get to what we want. We want to rush through the season of Advent to get to Christmas, much like we want to rush through Holy Week and pass by Good Friday so we get to Easter. But when we do that, we miss out on something. We miss out on something that happens as we experience the Advent of our life, those moments of Advent, of waiting, of expectation, rushing to Christmas, even as uh, it comes as unexpected as a, as a baby born in a trough. I love C.S. Lewis's description of this sense of waiting and as he described his world that he created, that it was always winter and never Christmas. For them, before Aslan came, before the Christ figure entered into the storyline, it was always winter and never Christmas. But then Aslan showed up and began to be on the move and the ice began to melt. Not only in the surroundings of the people, the animals, but also within the hearts of humanity. That sense of longing was coming to an end. Aslan was on his move. This is the hope of Christmas that our longings one day will be met. That we will be here in Christmas tide, and our waiting and expectation would come to an end as we get the opportunity to embrace Christ. We're going to read a passage in the scripture this morning that. It's going to be telling of a, of a man's season of Advent that came to an end, even as unexpected as it was in Jesus. So let's listen to the Lord's Word today. We're in Luke chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 22 through 35. We're going to spend all our time, we're just going to go through this passage, so you might want to pull out the Bible in front of you, or if you brought one, you can do that too. If not, we're going to have it here on the screen. Listen now to the word of the Lord. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping 
with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is the word of the Lord. The very beginning of this passage that we just, re- we just heard, there's two different things going on that we might miss just because of our cultural differences that we have between us and, and the, the community that this was originally written to and for. We see two different things going on. On one hand, we find that Mary was to be here at the temple courts. In Jewish law, when a mother gives birth to a child, she is deemed unclean for 40 days. Then after that time, they are go to Jerusalem, to specifically to Jerusalem, to make a purification sacrifice. So Mary's own sense of longing and waiting for these 40 days to be made clean again is coming to an end. But there's also something else that's going on here. Uh, in verse 23, it says, That is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. This is not speaking of Jesus' circumcision. That happened, as we know, in verse 21, on the eighth day when Jesus was born. Uh, after Jesus was born. This idea of being consecrated to the Lord uh, is a tradition for children. It was a, re- a di- redemption price was given. For the firstborn male, whether animal or human, they're be- supposed to be dedicated to God. For the animals, is to be sacrificed. But for humans, they were given a redemption price of five shekels, and they were bought back or redeemed. Um, in this text, we really don't see much conversation around that. And I think the original hearer of this would wonder, why, why wasn't that more pronounced? Why didn't they talk more about that? And I think, and it's just, this is just my own musing, but I wonder if, in fact, that the original hearer of this would wonder, why wasn't it made more clear that Jesus was redeemed and purchased back? Kind of gives us a little bit of a, a wonder as we move towards Jesus' life when he is ultimately given over to the Lord on the cross. Through this passage, though, we get a glimpse that the life of Christ was not purposed in abolishing the law. We see here that even when Jesus was a baby, that Jesus was coming up through the law. Jesus came up through the law so maybe that he could redeem the law. Jesus would later say in Matthew chapter 5, 17 and 18, his heart of how he actually was someone who obeyed the law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. This is Jesus speaking. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, 
will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus was saying this declaration that the law is not going to be dismissed until it's accomplished. And even then, it won't be dismissed. It'll just be redeemed. And Jesus is pointing to, for me, when I'm thinking about this, that by no means will disappear until everything is accomplished. It makes me think of Jesus upon the cross. One of the last things he said is, it is finished. Perhaps what he's pointing to is the power of the law to separate humanity from God. That in Christ, the law has been completed so that we live by a new law, a law to know and to follow Jesus, to serve God with all our heart, our mind. So this is incredibly important for the Jewish converts that they would see that Jesus is coming up through the law. And verse 24 gives us a little glimpse into Jesus' life. There's so much mystery around what did Jesus do for the first 30 years of his life? What did it look like? We get a small glimpse in this passage here in verse 24 that you and I might not know about. Verse 24, it says that Mary brought, this is for her sacrifice, uh, for purification, that she brought in accordance to the law, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. As we sing, two turtle doves on the second day of Christmas. So we find here that she's bringing two doves with her. Now the reason why this is important is uh, most women, to be made clean, would bring a lamb and a dove. But there was a provision in the law for uh, people who could not afford to purchase a lamb. That if, there, if you didn't have resources, if you were too poor, that you could instead purchase two dove. So provision was made for those people who didn't have much to be able to be entered into the community as pure again. So this gives us a glimpse into Jesus' life, his upbringing, that Mary and Joseph were poor. They were a poor couple. They couldn't even afford the lamb in which to sacrifice on this day. So provision was made for her. Now, this continues this idea that the Savior of the world, Christ the King, who was born in a trough, was entrusted to a couple without much means, that Jesus was going to be this, uh, this unexpected Savior. And also, this is just a random, this is a little random sidebar, but this also gives us insight that the Magi weren't actually there in the manger scene. It actually took them several years to come to Jesus. Uh, which messes up our nativity scenes, right? You know, so a more realistic nativity scene on your mantle should be the, you know, the shepherd and the wife, uh, the shepherd and Jesus and Mary in the trough and the camels and all that stuff. And then the magi are like in your neighbor's yard, maybe even their backyard. Um, because if they were there, they would have had abundant provision through gold and frankincense and myrrh to be able to purchase that lamb. But that hadn't happened yet. And so Mary and Joseph show up in poverty without a lamb but they carried with them the very Lamb of God. I personally love the example that Mary and Joseph give us uh, because anyone who is a parent of a firstborn knows their stress. I remember when uh, Dylan was born, we came to our house, and I remember slowly the grandparents began to leave, and we were trying to figure out ways to get them to stay, you know, bartering with them, you can have whatever you want, you know. And uh, slowly began to leave, and I began to look for the manual that came with our daughter. Didn't, ha didn't have it. All we have was the internet, and that's actually not really helpful. It just caused more fear than anything else. But the idea of, like, being entrusted with this incredible gift, 
But can you imagine for Mary and Joseph, not only was this your firstborn, this is the Son of God, you know? The whole world is resting upon your shoulders. So care and provide and to help raise this child. I mean, an angel showed up to you and told you about this. I mean, for me, I personally, one thing I would not do is I would not leave Jesus somewhere, like the temple, which is in the very next passage that we're not going to get to. But, I mean, if you can imagine for them the abundant amount of stress of what do we do with this Christ child? And for me in this passage, what we see is that Mary and Joseph, what they're doing is they're just doing, they're doing what they know to do. They're just going about what they know to do, what, what is written for them to go forward. It's what they believe that honors God. And for many of us, as we think about our life, and we get kind of paralyzed as we think about the future, what we, should we do? What, what, what can we do for this or make this prosper or flourish? For many of us, what we need to do is just the next right thing. Just do the next right thing to not be so dis, uh, disconcerted by the future as much as being present in this faithful moment. What can I do today to honor God? And we see here in this example that God actually shows up. God shows up and they're doing the next right thing. In verse 25, he shows up in this man named Simeon. In verse 25, we read, Now a man in Jerusalem called, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. We don't see him being a, a Pharisee or a scribe or someone of, of elite status. We just see that he's a righteous and devout man, maybe a commoner. And he was waiting on the consolation of Israel or the redemption of Israel. He was waiting for, uh, for the comfort that Israel is waiting for, the salvation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. We see the entrance of the character of the Holy Spirit working its way now in Luke. And it's good for us to remember that Luke and Acts were written by the same author. This is part one of a part two, uh, two-part series. And we see that the Holy Spirit's presence is now working its way uh, in the gospel message here in this man, Simeon, working on him, falling on him. And it was, it was this case. In verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Here we see the fact that Simeon was living in a season of Advent, a season of waiting, of hoping and trusting. We see the Holy Spirit had, had told Simeon that he would not see death before he saw the Messiah. And in this we see a theme emerging in this passage, this idea of seeing the Christ, which for us is so very important. So the Holy Spirit would tell him that he would not see death until he saw the Messiah. Verse 27. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law requires. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Don't we love it when strangers pick up your baby? Isn't that just the most comforting thing in the world? <laughs> uh, with Simeon, I mean, he's, he's compelled. He's compelled by God's Spirit and also perhaps by the waiting that he had done. Now, for me, I, I oftentimes, when I study passages like this, I pause and I just try to, in my own imagination, in my mind's eye, begin to consider what must have this have looked like? What was the picture that these authors were pinning here in this message? And I just, I imagine Simeon compelled by the Holy Spirit to say, 
Today is the day that you are going to see God's salvation. And he goes into the temple courts. I imagine an old person, in part because of this idea of waiting, that he is waiting for God. And we see him in the temple courts. Now, do we have any idea that he was told that salvation or the Messiah was going to be a baby? It doesn't say. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But I imagine Simeon in the temple courts with his eyes darting around everyone who walked in and seeing someone of prominence come in, someone who is eloquent come in, someone who had a following come in, and in his own flesh going, maybe that's the Messiah. And there was just silence in his own spirit. Maybe it would be a baby, and so a family came in with this huge entourage. And they had their lamb and their dove, and they were there, and, oh, that, that must be it. And then, quietly in the background, a poor couple holding a baby, carrying two dove, which is not something you'd be proud of, walk in. And then something within Simeon's spirit says, Yes, welcome your Messiah. And he's compelled to go. For us, oftentimes if we want to see Christ, we have to expand our view to to wonder how Christ might show up in our life. The unexpected ways, through the unexpected people, the unexpected moments of our life, to be able to see Jesus. That's what Simeon experienced here. And he responds, in a word of prayer or a song, we're not sure, but in verse 29, he begins to say these words with Jesus in his arms. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. His life has come to a complete circle. He's, he's done. He's made peace with his end. This is one of the things that happens when you see Christ and you embrace Christ is the fear of death leaves you. And for Simeon, we see that after seeing Jesus, that his life story is now made complete. You know, we have all experienced people's passing in our our family and our friends and people who've made peace with God and people who hadn't. And there's a sense where some people, after they've seen Jesus, where they just have the ability to not be fearful of death anymore. We see that in Simeon, and I've seen it in my own life. My grandfather, um, he was in a wheelchair at my grandmother's funeral, and, uh, and I just remember him making peace. His life was complete. And he pushed himself out, out of the wheelchair as we were singing uh, Is Well With My Soul on the last stanza, and he raised his hands. And we're Southern Baptist. We don't raise our hands higher than right around here. But I remember him raising his hands and saying, It is well with my soul. You know, a week and a half later, he was taken. And I just remember him just having peace. Not, my life is now complete. Dismiss your servant in peace. Verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation. For Simeon, salvation wasn't an experience, and it wasn't an event, it wasn't overthrowing the Roman rule. For him, seeing salvation was in the person Jesus. And that would be, continue to be the theme of Jesus' life. That it's not so much salvation wasn't something that Jesus did as much as something that Jesus was. That I am the resurrection of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That it was actually in the person of Jesus. And verse 31 continues. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation for, to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. 
You know, remember, this is the theme of seeing. You've prepared for this in the sight of all the nations. What Simeon is saying that he's seeing, that the whole world will be able to see. That we see now in God's salvation is not merely uh, for the nation of Israel, but it's for the entire world. This word was prophesied in Isaiah 49.6 when Isaiah wrote this. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore just the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the entire ends of the earth. You see, through Jesus, who came up through the law, it wasn't merely for the nation of Israel, but what Jesus was doing, what Simeon was praising God about, was that this act of salvation was going to be this cosmic event that would be for the entire world. That this thing that Simeon was holding, this life that, Jesus, that, that was Jesus, this thing was bigger than just Israel. It was bigger than just that moment. And this bigger thing includes you and I, this light of the world, 2,000 years later, would impact a place called Austin, Texas, in a room full of people that have faces and names like you and me. That this light that Simeon was praising God about can come into our lives and to change us. You're a part of this grand plan from the heart of God. And Simeon's song is rejoicing that you and we together experience the salvation found in this newborn baby. Savior named Jesus. Verse 33, the children's father and mother, they marveled at what was said about them. Most parents would want the passage to end there, <laughs> but it goes on. Then Simeon blessed, I use the quotations, blessed them and said to the mother Mary, this child is destined to cause the, the falling and the rising of many in Israel. We just got done in Christmas celebrating joy to the world, peace to earth, and this fact that Jesus is, is going to kind of renew the whole world. But we also find that Scripture is, is in conversation with one another here, and it says that the presence of this peacemaker Jesus also is going to cause conflict. It's going to cause separation. And Simeon's blessing to his mother is that this child is going to cause the rising and the falling of many. That's a weird blessing. <laughs> you see, in Jesus' life, we, we see oftentimes that the stone that the builder refuses is the, is the cornerstone for what God was doing. When Jesus would step in in many situations, there'd be this polarizing effect that Jesus, this Messiah, would show up and oftentimes do that which was unexpected, to resettle the kingdom of God in this world. And there's two different responses. People loved him and praised him. Their lives were changed because of it. Or typically, they wanted to kill him. <laughs> Those are pretty different from one another. The rising and falling of many. What was the thing that was so polarizing about Jesus? We live in a really polarized world right now, and I'm not saying that we should try to make it more polarized. What we need to think about is, what was it in Jesus that sent the rising, the falling of many? For me, what I believe is, those people who were raised up by Christ were those people who were humble, who came to Christ as a person in need, who was in need of a Savior, who was in need of God's mercy and grace in their life, to be made whole again. Those people were raised up by God. And the people who seemed to trip over Jesus were those people who were doing just fine. 
the people who didn't need a savior, a redeemer. Yet in the life of Christ, we see that Jesus is not merely a peacemaker. He's also a king. And so, Simeon holds this child and begins to claim that Christ indeed will cause the rising and the falling of many. One of the ways in which we see this, even in this passage, is through seeing the light, that Jesus is going to be the light for the whole world. For us, light is ex- it exposes, and either that's a freeing thing or it causes a lot of desire to reject it. We see here in this passage that it causes that the light exposes the thoughts of many. It reveals the thoughts and hearts of men and women. But also it's the sense of freeing and salvation that as the light shines in our life, that we can fall towards grace and embrace Christ. We see that here. Simeon's blessing ends with a word that I'm sure stuck with Mary. Verse 35. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Perhaps what this was speaking to, I mean, you can imagine a parent going, what? I should imagine Simeon kind of just walking away. What does it mean a a sword's going to pierce my soul too? Well, perhaps we were were reminded of when Jesus on the cross and John, it has the fact that Mary was right there the whole time. And perhaps in that account when the soldiers put the spear into Jesus' side just to make sure that he's dead. That any parent, any mother who has to see that, it, it's going to feel like a sword going into your own soul as well. How in the world is that a blessing? <laughs> well, in part, I think it's helpful for Mary to prepare her heart. For many of us, the, the moments of sorrow, the seeds that come from Suffering and pain one day grow into places of comfort and hope. And we see that in Jesus' life. And for Mary, that she could know in this moment the fact that that there's going to be a purpose, that the suffering that Mary was going to have to go through is part of God's salvation plan for the entire world. Have hope that there's a bigger story going on. That's a hard thing for us to live with. But that's also the gospel. Just a last thought to share with us all is, as we think about this new year, just want to challenge us with this idea of waiting and trusting. How is an incredible challenge for us to live that out. For us in our faith life, the idea of waiting is an active verb. It's not merely doing nothing. In the faith life, the sense of waiting is a humble place of trust towards God. So where in your life are you still waiting for God to show up? Many of us have stopped waiting on God. We've learned how to fashion a life without expectation. But Simeon's experience declares something else. There is a rare type of joy that is only reserved for those people who have waited in God's deliverance for God to show up, to see God new. So where in your life do you long to see Jesus? To what degree do you long to see Jesus show up in your life, in your marriages, in your homes, in your workplace? Jesus said the words, ask, seek, and knock, and I'll be there. We also find the words, seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. My encouragement for you this new year is to press into a posture of waiting and trusting for Christ. 
look for Jesus in your life, and maybe Simeon's joy will also be yours. One of the ways in which we look to see Christ is through our sacraments. This is one of the ways in which we see Jesus in our life when we are fed by Jesus. This table is not our table. It's not Westlake Hills Presbyterian table. It's not our table. It's this Jesus' table. He said it. He prepared it. He paved the way. So you are welcome to come, all those who proclaim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to come to be fed, to be nourished, to experience the joy that can come from seeing and embracing the Christ. So come. Come humbly that Jesus might raise you, just as we just heard.